0: Hello, and welcome to the sixth season of The Hive Podcast, the series that inquires into our relationship with one another, with technology, and the natural world. Join me, Natalie Nahai, as we dive into the complex and challenging questions of our time, and explore how some of the great minds are forging new and creative paths forward. For more information and resources about today's guest and the topics we explore, you can visit natalinahai.com forward slash the Podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Naima Pasha, the Director of Henley Careers and Professional Development, Director of Diversity and Inclusion, and the founder of The World of Work at Henley Business School. A principal practitioner with the Association of Business Psychologists, Naima and her team empower people and businesses to reach their goals through applied positive psychology tools, and they have won multiple awards in professional development by using innovative techniques to stretch people and businesses further. Naima's research on the future of work spans the territory of AI, ethics, climate change, diversity and inclusion and more, And her doctoral research on managing careers in uncertainty explored key factors that enable people to take a positive, proactive stance to build successfully against the backdrop of technological change. Her new book, Future Proof Your Career, How to Lead and Succeed in a Changing World, is co-authored by Shahina Jivraj and comes out in December this year. We covered a lot of ground in this conversation, from what diversity and inclusion practices might look like to how we might evolve towards the future of work and the insights that stem from her new paper, The Equity Effect. I hope you enjoy the discussion. Dr. Naima, thank you so much for talking with me today. I'm happy to be having this exciting conversation with you. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. (laughs) So I'm going to start by what I'm fast discovering is quite a contentious question to open this conversation with. And that's to ask what you think is happening in the global human psyche. And perhaps even whether that's a frame that you'd be comfortable using.
1: The global human psyche. Mm. Uh, So that's an interesting question. I definitely wasn't expecting that. (laughs) I think one of the things I feel about the... I'm not sure if we have got a global human psyche. That suggests that we're all... Uh, connected up quite similarly and thinking quite similarly I think there are similarities that people think but there is so much disparity Mm. between different societies I I think that's one of the things I feel quite concerned about actually Mm -hmm. is that we do have um, you know very different different things so I think one of the things about our human psyche I feel is that is disparity and inequality and polarized thinking I think that's one of the main kind of areas that I feel is a concern to me.
0: Mm. that's a really interesting starting point i want to come back to that before i come to that point i want to crack open another nut which is around meaning especially in the backdrop of some of those themes that you've explored but also just the the challenges that so many people have had to face in a different context over the last 18 months and that's where are you finding meaning at the moment um
1: i'd um this is interesting because obviously being in a business school, we, we're we always looking at trends um, of organisations and what they're looking at. And one of the things that people are looking at now is how people find meaning in work. And obviously as a career practitioner, this is one of the things I always look for, for how people find a sense of meaning in what they do, the values they get and how they feel, a sense of purpose and, and moving forward. And there's lots of work around organisations having purpose and they 're better led organizations, so I think this is this is something that 's talked about a lot in organization i don 't know if it 's a shift though, because I think this is you know if you look at human psychology or human beings we've there 's been meaning and purpose since we were out on the savannah looking at, and looking at creation and how we evolve i mean that 's part of the human psyche is to evolve to look at the new, look at where to progress you know to discover new worlds and, and so on. So I think it's something that we're just perhaps readdressing in certain areas. I, wh- I think what I'm saying is I don't want to say that we're a unique part of human you know humanity mm. that other people haven't discovered. I think we're just augmenting on top of where other people have been sort of doing great things as well.
0: I, I wonder if we kind of pull on that thread a bit, the idea about purpose and meaning and maybe that being themes that we would have explored in other domains of life previously. So think about my parents' generation, it would have been more within maybe a social context or a religious context or in the home. Do you feel that there is more of a bleeding of... Boundaries between home life and work life, and what we expect to find in in each or other domains. So, uh, I kind of I do <laughs> look,
1: I'm kind of thinking I was gonna say, oh yes, absolutely. But I feel like all I'm saying is I'm not so sure. So uh, again, because if we go back again through history and through different cultures, um, if you went back to the agricultural age, there wasn't that much of a difference between work and home life and work life balance. People used to work mm. very long hours. Children used to be working. Um, you know, from a young age, there was a whole kind of different context of what work was an economic need to work, um, and having leisure time was a completely, you know, wasn't like oh, I deserve my leisure. And then, as you move forward, if we look at you know my area of interest uh, or work, as you know, is about technology and um, the impact of work. But I'm, I'm really, it's the work bit I'm most interested in. And a lot of people, if I can answer this in a, in this way. A lot of people are talking now uh, about these new changes that are coming in and often they're called the fourth industrial revolution, the the impact Mm -hmm. of AI coming in. But if we look back at the first industrial revolution... Um, we'll see that what happened through there is that through industrialization, we create a different sense of what work is because cities started forming, because there was mass production as we moved through the different kind of industrial ages. So people started gathering in cities, factories formed, mass production, com- um, travel, communication, because of having to transport goods. So society's been built up. Our parents and parents and, people and grandparents and so on were through this sort of time where work adapted when we all had to adapt. So into going into a workplace, coming back from a workplace, women in the workplace. Mm. Um, Then through that, then people started advocating that we needed things like a rest. So there was people saying actually we needed a weekend. Um, So that came through from the unions when with um, the Ford factory. So now then we started getting a context of what work looked like and that changed so having a weekend uh, the kind of things you're talking about that parents experienced like a nine to five and the and those you know demarcations mm. started changing but then we're evolving again through another uh, experience particularly this experience of the pandemic of um uh, and then perhaps going through more of a hybrid way of working for some people who've, who've had the opportunity to work from home and then looking going back so I think it's I think it's just another stage of evolution, again. So, coming back to what you're saying about uh, the demarcation, home life, things like that, I think it's it's a cycle, and you're going back much further to parents, grandparents, great great grandparents, and all that. You'll see that there's just different stages of work, if that makes sense.
0: No one's described it in such an interesting and rhythmic way before, because often we think, you know, we're on the cusp of this upward trajectory of of progress and we forget that actually a lot of this stuff maybe is cyclical and that we've I think we have a short-sightedness maybe to the ways in which we assess our place within the narrative arc of our species so we think that everything we're doing now is new and exciting and novel and actually is is not necessarily the case. Technology is the invention of the wheel. Technology is the
1: invention. You know, start, uh, if we look at starting um, urbanisation, that was part of technology with with the industrial revolution, the last, industri- the third industrial revolution, second industrial revolution, where urban cities, as I said, urban, you know, people coming together. That meant, and then also through that, skilling mm-hmm. changed, which is another area we talked about is. Um, So then that meant we needed different kinds of people and leadership, actually. You know, if you're having groups of people together, and that was something really started coming through from about the 1940s and 50s about understanding what, and that's when business schools started coming together. So if you're getting people together, then (laughs) to work with them Mm. in sort of automated areas and production and things, and you needed people to supervise. And then, then, voila,
0: leadership came. Mm -hmm. So I want to circle back uh, maybe through leadership actually to the theme that you raised at the very top of the conversation which was around a lack of equity and the disparity of people's experiences and obviously I think part of maybe what you're describing here is a lot of the systemic inequality that has been in existence for a long time but certainly in the last year has come under a much stronger spotlight and I'd like to tie that into your work exploring leadership, your work as the head of equity, diversity and inclusion at Henney Business School, and maybe also in the context of the fascinating report that you recently published called The Equity Effect. Can you tell us a bit about the key findings of maybe of the report and the implications they have for business as we seek to build resilience, as we seek to find ways to give people greater opportunities.
1: Yeah, and let me start with that first because I think that's quite, um, uh, I can go to that quite quite soon because I think it, again, links to everything we've been talking about, how work has adapted and what we're looking at, what we looked in when we, um, you know, worked on the, the equity effect was to look at the equity uh, to businesses for investing in racial equity. So what we found was those businesses that actively confronted inequity and racism with practical measures recorded an average revenue of 58% higher mm-hmm. um, than those that didn't. Um, but let me explain the methodology. So we, when we did this race equity report, we've got three different forms of uh, analysis there. We did a quantitative study for about 1000 workers and about 500 leaders. We also did a qualitative study where we went to sort of deeper dive on people's experience. Mm. And we also did this analytical data analysis as well. And for this 58%, just for people who want to know this, the details behind that, that was uh, what we looked at as 100 companies in the FTSE 350 yeah. of different sizes and different sectors and industries. Um, so to get the mix there uh, and to look at the comparisons there. So that's what and we took out some of the outliers as well. Um, so that's how we got to the 58% there.
0: That's extraordinary. This really points towards a robust reason why people should, if they are otherwise unconvinced, actually take proactive measures to support people to thrive and to be given the same opportunities as anyone would hope to have.
1: Yes, I agree with you. And um, the response to the report has been overwhelmingly positive. I'm so (laughs) pleased. I was bracing myself thinking people go oh, here we go, here's more of this stuff. <laughs> and, oh, no, we have to hear it again. And it's not been like that. It's been super positive. Uh, but a couple of people going, yeah, yeah, we know this sort of mm. stuff. But uh, And and actually, I have to say that the data, uh, the stats are, you know, basically enforce all the reports and all the research that have been done previously in this area that essentially say, well, they, they say uh, two things. First of all, if you look after your employees so you make them feel valued you make them feel like they belong then they're going to be perform better because they're more engaged Mm. your productivity increases so it's kind of like common sense common business sense um, to do this so that's one thing and the um and the other thing is that um diversity in the broadest sense um feeds innovation Mm -hmm. so when you've got a broader group of people in your organization productivity is higher innovation is higher and actually, in my thesis, when I did my doctoral thesis, I was looking at uh, organizational productivity. And I found that those organizations that have, for example, different offices around the world, when they've got multi locations, have higher productivity, <laughs> interestingly. Mm. And looking at the data behind that is because they are interspersed, you know, they've got a lot more different people, different ideas, that perhaps people move around um, than people who are just sort of based in one place and one town say for example and one organization that doesn't have the perhaps the supply chain that's very varied so diversity is basically you know the end goal of every organization if they want to if they want to be competitive
0: mm. i mean it's a route to resilience especially if we are up against really complex challenges, then of course it makes sense to want to draw on the expertise and perspective of as rich a group as possible so that we can come at it with as much creativity and ingenuity as possible. To me, it's just a no-brainer.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I think it is a, a, it's a no-brainer. That, um, and I, I'm really glad, actually, that we've gone with um, with the stat. Uh, I mean, with, there's lots of data in the report, but one, that, the, that big stat at the 58% increase in revenue is a correlation, by the way, not can 't say it 's a causation so we but the correlation is strong and and many other reports have got similar kind of correlation, which I think means you know you need to stand up and uh, take, you know sit up and take notice of it for leaders so yeah you know i I do think it uh, this is really this is another future of work critical thing that if we if we don't have diversity of thinking, number one, and include that, we, your organisation is not going to be as competitive. Mm. It's just not going to happen. And if you're not creating that kind of revenue increase, you can't invest that back in into R&D and all the other things. These are organisations are going to start you know, outstripping because they've got good diversity. Mm. And it's not just about having diversity. The report actually goes into actively working against racism, racial inequality. And all those kind of um, negative factors as well. So it's working on discrimination as well. So there's a lot of a lot in the report about where people still feel discrimination, where they're getting perhaps verbal abuse. Mm. And we've gone into some details about the difference between Asian and black, for example. We find that um, black employees uh, remain the worst off and they're twice as likely uh, to experience racial discrimination compared to um, Asian employees or, or mixed-race uh, minorities as well. So... It's a report with a lot of data. (laughs) Mm.
0: It's one of these things where, so I speak as someone who is white with my mother from an Iranian background and my father from a Gibraltarian mixed European background. And for someone who hasn't experienced that kind of discrimination, these kinds of reports I find are so important to keep me awake to the fact that what I experience is actually quite a supportive and privileged environment and one in which... I don't have those same blocks that other people experience. And I think there is so much about having to tolerate or deal with or come up against racism and bias. There's so much about that that is unfamiliar to me that I think these kinds of reports are vital if we're going to actually change things because the problems that we don't experience ourselves on a day-to-day basis are so easy to become um, abstracted. You You think about the washing that happens, whether it's greenwashing or washing around diversity and inclusion or washing around age discrimination or cognitive diversity, if it's something that the people in positions of leadership don't have to confront on a day-to-day basis, it's very easy to not feel the implications of the decisions that they make. What are your thoughts about the role that you have as a researcher and as a business leader in driving home perhaps kind of the story behind the data to get people to connect with it in a way that is hard for them to ignore? I don't know if that's too much of a provocative question. That's in the report as well.
1: Mm -hmm. So uh, what we found is that white leaders who uh, actually don't see race as much of a a problem as uh, people from ethnic, minority, black, Asian, other minority groups as well, which kind of sounds obvious in a sense, doesn't it? If you're not experiencing it, you're less likely to notice it. But I think going back to the business argument, and there are a lot of people that are saying you perhaps you shouldn't use a business argument. It demeans the the whole aspect about race and race equality, the humanity, the human aspect of it. But actually, it's I'm quite happy that it's uh, there. I'm very uh, because I think. Business is society. It's not separated from society. Mm. We all have to work in an organisation. We buy things from businesses. We're educated in organisation. Whatever it is, you know, these are. Uh, it's not separated. So I think an argument about how an organisation structures and how it's successful should be part of the discussion. We shouldn't be separating off these kind of discussions, in my view, into something. Uh, which is about not, uh, you know like an HR discussion or a cultural discussion that they should be fully embedded in a business argument as well mm. and I also and as part of that when we looked at this we did see leaders not um, connecting with it if you're not from a black or Asian or other ethnic minority background which we understand and actually the report goes in to say what we found is that the intention wasn't that people didn't want to see people treated fairly actually uh, what we found is um, people do want to see people and not everybody if you look at the stats it's not Um, massive but uh, you know what we saw there is that it's looking at the language of how to engage people and how you start putting conversation about racial diversity inclusion into an organization what that means and therefore how you might you know you just said about how people experience that and how you can engage it and your background is psychology and and if we go back to one of the One of the reasons why it's so critical is that um, the kind of things we think about in terms of in-out grouping Mm. as part of um, psychology when you feel that, you know, there's a human need to feel part of a tribe. Obviously, you want to be an individual in it, but it's really important for us to feel affiliated to the group that we live and work with and and, you know even though we want to be ourselves within it nobody wants to be ostracized and feel alienated from a group because that does um, impact your self-esteem it can even impact your health your mental health and and physical health even so actually belonging is so particularly important and that's why when you have race uh, um, racism or other forms of discrimination it's so a horrible experience but it also will impact your whole organisation, so, which is why it has to. Well, I'm really happy that we're doing this report, mm. to, so people really put it on their agenda, right the top of the strategy.
0: Mm. It's interesting you talking about it through the lens of business, because I think the more lenses we can look at it through and integrate it through, the more likely we are to actually find ways to change how the system works, to actually challenge and resolve some of the, the hurdles that are that are in place, whether those hurdles are economic, cultural, social—I mean, they're all interconnected because the hurdles arise from somewhere, right? So, I wonder—you know—one of the things I've seen recently, which I've found actually quite—it's um, given me cause for optimism—is the way in which certain sectors are seeming to look at the interconnectedness of a lot of the most intractable and complex challenges that we're facing. So whether that's issues around the climate crisis, around food poverty, around uh, opportunities for work or opportunities for education, issues that you mentioned around race, issues around gender, all of these issues, I think, are starting to be connected. It's as though we're at a time where... Some people are starting to join the dots and and say, well, okay, are there common threads that weave these issues together? And how can we look at these problems in such a way that we take a holistic approach and try to resolve, I think, more from a systems-based perspective so that we can come to a place where we've got a vision that supports everyone, that enables people to help one another, to feel that sense of belonging, to to problem-solve together Is this something that you're witnessing also? Is this something that's showing up in business or elsewhere in the work that you're doing? Yeah, I have to go back to my <laughs> to go back to the report
1: again to Great. say, Actually, when we looked at, I know it's like let's just talk about the report all the time. So in the report, the equity effect. Obviously, we're looking at race equity, but what we actually found is businesses that undertook those measures about basically, for example, specifically allocating a budget towards racial equity, targeted training, looking at underrepresented groups, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, actually, we also looked at them to see what else they're doing. We also found them pursuing a range of CSR activities, including as you just talked about things around the climate so looking at how they were going for net zero it's a really kind of obviously many organizations going to that looking at how they're going to support inequity and looking at their responsibility and how they are in their supply chain that's very very complex mm. because if you look at some of the green kind of routes you know like electric vehicles at the one one stage we think we're we've shifting from fossil fuels but if you look at the mining of um, material that's needed for uh, electric vehicles then that's what sort child labour or it's all quite horrible anyway there's that kind of so having a look at those sort of things but also looking at how they could support through um other groups with you know targeted charities and support as well so i think the connection is is that an organization leadership group or individuals if you're starting to look at things around equity and purpose then you're going to probably look at it from a broader range but it doesn't mean and actually something called esg which you Maybe be familiar with it's a form of investment looking at environmental social and governance so it's growing and there's there's a lot of as you just talked about greenwashing there's still you know it's still growing and there may be elements of that but more and more people are looking to invest in organizations that are more ethical more responsible mm. have a commitment to their staff to look after them well commitment to the community to society to the planet um, and that is that is growing, so it seems there's more of the mindset of connecting those, and it, but it's quite broad. It's, got, it's an, across many, many different sectors. Mm.
0: So to weave back into the work that you're doing now on the future of work. This last year, you've co-written what sounds like a very timely, very exciting book called Future Proof Your Career, A Practical Guide to Success in the New Normal. Can you tell me a bit about what it is, who you wrote it with, and when it's coming out?
1: Of course, yes. So this was um, uh, one of my um, <laughs> one of my projects um, <laughs> as we moved into doing more work from home. So I was able to write a book with my uh, colleague, uh, Dr. Shahina Janjuha-Jivraj, Jivraj, who is now at HSA Business School um, in Doha. And what we wanted to do was to write this book to look at the impact of um, things that are coming on stream, that including technology. Uh, future the kind of things i've been looking about around ai um, but also looking at the impact of what happened through covid climate and the social impacts and social movements that we've had and then really pushing that forward and picking up on some of my research i did um, previously about the kind of skills that we need in order to sort of navigate and support us through this next stage Um, you know how we can start adapting um, and understand how we need to adapt the kind of skills that we need to evolve and what we kind of how we might want to think um, to make ourselves more Mm. productive and sustainable in terms of our jobs that's that's the that was the purpose behind that and uh, and that's out in
0: October and it's published by Bloomsbury. That's very exciting so so what are some of these key skills because I think One of the things even prior to the pandemic that people were voicing concerns about was the disruptions that AI and machine learning and automation might bring to their professional lives. And obviously, with the widespread adoption of remote working and the acceleration of digital transformation by all kinds of businesses, it means that people are now left with this question, well, what now? How do I future-proof my business? What skills can I Engage in or develop, or what lines of profession should I reorient towards so what would you say to, to people asking these questions? Well, if we look at some of the kind of stats that are coming out, particularly
1: something like the World Economic Forum who does some really amazing research on this, so a lot of jobs will be impacted by AI and some will go. but what I think we 're really looking at is some job tasks will go we 've already experienced that already mm. because of us we 've moving into i mean who who hasn't got a smartphone now um and you know re- you know perhaps we're recording on smartphones we're communicating on smartphones we we're connecting in different ways there's so much that we will do on this the small computer in our pocket uh, fueled by ai so things are already working and if you're using um ai assistants like um a google hub or your siri alexas and so on they're, they're all we're already using the these ai assistants for example they're going to grow they're going to start developing so um, a piece of research that we did in henley um, at the world of work where, uh, which was set up is uh, we found that by we expect by 2030 if organizations and tech firms start pushing ai assistants into the workplace so you've got alexa as a work colleague for example mm. we think what it will do is adapt the tasks that you're working on to take away more of the routine tasks Um, which is what AI is coming in to do a lot more of and taking away some of the rule-based routine work, you know, like some of the systems that's already in place and it's moving much faster. Uh, It could give us back a lot. Well, we we calculate it as 12 working days a year will come back to workers. Um, And I think that's when we have that, we should reinvest that into training and development. What AI can't do still, It's called artificial intelligence, which is a term that when it was developed back in 1957, I think. It was in the 50s uh, when um, a group of scientists came together and sort of... um, you know, sort of developing early AI, and they want it to mimic the human brain, which is why they call it artificial intelligence. A lot of it isn't intelligent yet. Mm. So it's about routine things. So it's, ta- it's I think what we have to worry about is not that the jobs are going to go entirely, but know how jobs will adapt. And that happens with any industrial revolution. Skills change, and we need to start learning New skills, and that's the research I looked at. So, there's a set of digital skills that we'll probably need to understand. um, But it's not just like, oh, we need how to code or something that is important, but we need to actually start thinking well, what does this mean? What What is the, you know, if we've got a whole set of data, how are we going to use this data ethically, for example? How are we going to have a responsible approach to this data? And, and that's what the kind of skills I've looked at in terms of the human skills that are needed, which include things like empathy and collaboration, things that we're expecting, but also thinking responsibility, responsibly about what we are as an organisation and how we contribute. Mm.
0: Do you think that there's there's a question there also around how we use ethics and values to design artificial intelligence or tools technological tools to support our better selves so to reduce bias to reduce discrimination is that something that that you think is possible and something that businesses are willing to try I hope it is because I've written
1: (laughs) that's actually my model which is in the which is well described in the book but I've called it metaskilling as a future work so future work model about skills so uh, and it's got three parts so the first part is about digital and AI skills so it does mean that we need to understand what we're talking about um uh, and understand the kind of technological tools. Because if we're going to apply them and use them, then we need to understand them, you know, how how, how they work. Not necessarily everybody become techie, but at least to kind of understand them. Mm. And the next layer is, I say, uh, there will be an rec- increased need, as we're already seeing, through perhaps the experience that we're having um, for those workers that have worked remotely is that we've had to communicate through Zoom and Teams. We've had to communicate different ways. So we've really had to use, and, and these tools are also AI-based and a, uh, email is AI-based now as well. If you're looking at your email, it will come through with predictive offerings now. Where, um, mm. Your WhatsApp is also using predictive. That's all through AI and it's recognising the language you're using and so on and so forth. So it's looking at, therefore, we have to step up um, our ability to connect and and work together and how we innovate and collaborate. So those human skills are really important. But but what 2020 brought to the fore, again, this is not the first time it's happened, but it brought us back into this experience uh, was through things like Black Lives Matter, Mm. Time's Up. And also uh, through um, observing how coronavirus impacted different parts of the world, uh, we're still, whilst in the UK, we're going through a really positive vaccination programme. And uh, I think we uh, we should be fully vaccinated as a as a country for those people that want. will, will take it up um, by September as their target. Mm-hmm. But in some con- other countries around the world, there hasn't even been that kind of take up at all because of the inequalities. And if we allow that inequality to happen, that some countries don't take up, uh, aren't able to take up vaccines because they're not able to you know they're not able to administer it because of costs and so on then there's no point us having it <laughs> in, in some way so we're observing how really firsthand inequality we're observing that coronavirus really impacted those who are on the front line really strongly so I think this extra layer that I put in around uh, my skilling model is a third one and I've called it activism because it's about how we can start thinking as activist workers, what our responsibility is, how leaders uh, act as an activist as well, so in order to take things forward. So it's quite a strong skills model in terms of like, it's quite a, you know, dynamic one.
0: And it sounds like something which people are actually hungry for, because I think one of the things that does seem to have shifted more broadly is kind of the, the approach that we have to the ways in which we think of our values and how we live them, the attitudes we have towards different aspects of our lives, maybe what we prioritise, expectations about work. You mentioned earlier about purpose and meaning, and I think, if I think of it as a, a snow globe, the pandemic has been very difficult for so many people, and it has also shaken up those who have luckily been less affected by loss of loved ones or loss of health And so I wonder in in this instance, if you think that the collective experience, as varied as it has been, the fact that we're all going through this epoch together, this transition together, even though that shows up differently for different people, do you think that there is more of an openness now to reassess how we want to build things going forward? Do you think that values and expectations have changed?
1: Uh, I think what we've got is uh, there's a group of people in Many organisations who are talking about purpose,
0: which is which
1: is really important, and they're connected it to a lot of other people who talk about purpose, and a lot of that business schools, senior leaders, and so on and so forth. But then if you look at politics in some places, they're not talking in the same way. They're talking, uh, and then if you look at some business leaders who talk about purpose, and they're maybe leading tech, for, you know, social media, for example, which is creating difference. I don't think we're on the same page. I don't think there's mm. a collective uh, way of thinking, and we've got politics that's. Um, You know, in some areas, we've got quite divisive, uh, you know, kind of politics and populism. And I'm not not being optimistic because I am an optimistic person. I just think I'm standing back from this broad kind of view, looking at different societies, looking at different cultures, looking at different politics in different organisations and countries. And I don't think there's, I don't think we can say there's a holistic way of thinking. Mm. But I don't necessarily think that's bad as well particularly in all, in countries where you can you can speak out and be di- uh, and, and think differently. In the Spanish flu, the previous pandemic, um, there were people who argued against mar- wearing masks, for example, people who argued against uh, their form of lockdown or whatever it is. And it's just part of what people do. And I think it's just, in a sense, <laughs> well, we don't want that to happen. You know, I don't want that to happen. But at the same time, being free to express it is something I think... I would stand up for it. It's that Voltaire thing. I may not disagree with you, but I support your right to speak against it. So I don't think there is a unanimity around values,
0: Mm.
1: but I'm not necessarily thinking that that's a terribly bad thing because I also don't think who has the right to what values completely. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I'd like to think that more space has been made for people to have difficult discussions and to generatively disagree together in an ideal world that's kind of what I would like to see us move towards and I think with all the writing around psychological safety around debate um, there's a particular author and podcaster who I follow Krista Tippett who runs this podcast called On Being and she also does a lot of work in civil conversations which is principally to create a forum within which people with very differing views or mindsets can come together and have these respectful but robust discussions about their perspectives and points of difference. And I think that, like that that's kind of what I'm holding on to as an example of where we could go within work to have these conversations.
1: I agree with you. And I think we can have some lines in the sand. We can say, for example, racism is bad. Mm. Knife crime is a terrible thing. Let's sign up. We all agree on certain things. We don't need to have two sides on every debate. Um, mm. So we should have some sort of common goals like that. But in terms of, um, you know, organisational values that people talk about, and, you know, you, you have, I think there are nine main values that organisations take from and they have probably sort of narrowed down to two or three for each organisation but I think that's okay that you've got differences in that way that's what I kind of think that you have you can approach things differently.
0: So another area that you explore is how to manage careers in uncertainty which is something I think you explored in your doctoral research is that right? Yes yes. (laughs) And so obviously this is a theme which is on many people's lips at the moment and so when it comes to coping with or perhaps even thriving under volatile or unpredictable conditions? What are some of the key learnings or insights you can share with us as to how we might do that?
1: Thank you. Yeah, so that's what I kind of looked in my um uh, in my research really looking at how um you know with with uncertainty and we could say uncertainty is around all the time so this is quite handy kind of research <laughs> but it's also yeah. I think quite uh, I think quite useful in the sense that you know a pandemic is a huge impact on us. And then we've also got, I think, this. uh, um, we're also looking at sustainability as this massive change that's coming towards us as well. Mm -hmm. Plus, of course, Mm -hmm. we have AI and technology. So uh, at the moment, we're sort of grappling with these kind of uh, huge changes that we have. So my work is looking at how we move around that. And I really found some key things that I found were particularly important. There's different kind of things I looked at, but one of the Four main skills, which I'm happy to go through, really, um, (laughs) is looking at one of the things was having a, was being quite analytical. So having that competency of being able to analyze was really important and I, I think that was we can see why that is important because if you don't continue work on doing some analysis of yourself the environment it's often called sense making as well that you start looking at what's going out and looking at what's going on and start making sense of the, the kind of changes in the environment and businesses that don't do that looking at what's around them won't tend to survive because they haven't been Mm -hmm. you can't adapt unless you know what's going on so analytical skills are really critical and then being open to change and openness to experience because I looked at big five Mm -hmm. personalities part of that and two big five um, characteristics came through openness to experience it's those people that are able to look at things being tolerant to change is is a particularly interesting trait to have when openness to experience allows that to happen if you have that quality but it's looking at new things it's being interested in the new that coupled with that interestingly was conscientiousness which is another big five mm. personality trait as you know um, but so it's having that kind of target focus so whilst you're being open to experience it's still being driven and moving forward to you know commit, do the things that you want to do. So this is an interesting mix of being analytical, being open to experience, creative, new ideas, but conscious, conscientious as well. But the final piece into the mix, I also looked at career resilience as well and developed a scale on career resilience. And the most critical factor I found influencing managing uncertainty, including amongst all these three, was self-reliance. When I looked at develop my career resilience scales, being self-reliant was critical. And I'd say that's one of the most important things about managing uncertainty um, and having a, you know, because what we're entering is probably non-linear career paths. Is that, you know, perhaps in when we talked about these other industrial revolutions, you join an organisation, there's more stability in the, you know, you mm. join, a, you join um, Ford. Let's go back to them. Um, (laughs) go there and you stay there forever and then you'd have your you'd retire with your uh, gold watch and 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 your pension pensions are all strange now you know it's very difficult when you retire all these mixes are coming in so there's complete non-linearity in how we we're looking at work so self-reliance if i start unpacking that it's really and it's having the sense that you people start feeling i own my Career, I own my life, I have to make decisions, and it will sit on top of self efficacy. The ability we can call um, confidence in some ways, having a sense of confidence in your own abilities, your own skills, and your strengths, and having the sense that you can own it and change it, and that feels quite empowered. So it does link to some of the things we talk about in privilege as well, but feeling quite Mm. empowered. Means that you feel more self-reliant. So those those people that think the organisation will sort out my learning, for example, my manager will sort out how I progress. You know, they, I'll leave it to someone else to tell me. Though that is kind of you can understand. I'm saying it very simplistic, but you can actually see that kind of thinking, which is quite prevalent uh, in previous in previous kind of you know um, industries, is that is not self-reliant. So what we're saying, in, what I'm saying through my research is that being more self-reliant, thinking, what learning do I need? What skills do I need to develop? And if you're coupling that with the analytical ability, open to experience, conscientious, you can actually see then this blend is really critical for managing uncertainty and it won't feel as worrying and con- as it will be because you, you're taking more control. It, it does mean hard work that you have to keep, you know, analysing and thinking and planning.
0: Mm. And also probably quite a proactive um, approach to your own development and your own progress, as opposed to just passively waiting to be told uh, what it is that you're expected to do.
1: You've summarised it perfectly well. It's really, it's really strong on um, proactivity um, and also adaptability. Mm-hmm.
0: So, with all of these different issues and challenges that we've touched on today, that we're hoping to to make some progress on, some really tangible, practical progress on. What vision of the world are you holding for other people?
1: I'm not really holding a vision for other people. My vision would be people hold a vision for themselves. Mm. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> oh, right. well, it's going back to my, uh, the whole, what we just talked about is about managing. So my it, it is for people to feel that sense of ownership of, you know, and, and being an actor in, you know, they're not passive mm. in their uh, career. And that's essentially the what the, book is saying your career is is to be more in charge because obviously these are big waves of changes that coming come in and we talk about this in the book that these it feels like a tsunami that's coming in to hit you mm. but actually if you start breaking these things down uh, we can manage it we can change it so we can we can do these things Um, it just needs you know and it doesn't need that many people if you start thinking you can make the change you can start moving forward we do need organizations to recognize where privilege is and how we can adapt that and make things easier that's already happening Um, you know we're putting these reports in it's changing the arguments that's my um, vision is for people to um, feel able to make the changes they will and also trust the process a bit.
0: And then before I dive into the last question, I'm curious to know if there is a book that has captivated your imagination, and if so, why? Oh, flippin' neck!
1: <laughs> <laughs> I've got a lot of books which I do dive into. Any, I have about several books that are going on at the same yeah. time. I read a lot more. I read a lot more papers because it's unfortunately just the way that I'm thinking and about. You know, if you're writing academic work, you kind of read a lot more papers. Going back to my sense of what i'd like is people own their future people create and having this ability to adapt is really really important um, one of the papers i really found uh, supported my research which i really liked was um and books written by uh, david teese who talked about organizations adapting um and he called it more dynamic capabilities is his work but what I think actually is the stuff I like when I was younger: science fiction, and mm. I used to like, um, I used to like Thomas Hardy, *Tess of the D'Urbervilles*, and things like this. I, th- I think you can get inspiration and ideas about humanity and people and who we are from so many different places: from movies, from books, and things. So, I think these all cre- come together and create our sense of the world. And I just encourage people, uh, particularly younger people, to to continue reading, thinking, and and pushing their minds and and having a positive intent about what they want to achieve and do.
0: So finally, what question, if I were to to press upon you to to give people a question that they might dwell with right now at this moment, what question would that be? The question for all of us
1: is, I think, and that's including me, uh, uh, maybe even especially me, is to think about what's driven our behaviours to get us to where we are, what shaped that, and perhaps really thinking through which of those behaviors we've developed because of that's what we think we have to do, or we've we taught that about our parents or school or something has happened, and, and really kind of going back again to the self-reliance thing is stripping that back to think, what do I do and what do I want to? What's important to me, and what do I need to get to get where I want to go? And I think that's what I'd like to say is like letting go of some of the things that you think you need to do and do more of the stuff that you want to do.
0: Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalina High. If you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating and review as it helps to reach new ears. And for more information, you can visit natalinahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast or reach out to me on Twitter at Natalina High. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.